0: You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV.
1: Well, welcome to the SOFIA audience. I am very, very pleased today to be joined by my friend and uh, colleague, uh, David Ottlinger. Um, David, it's traditional to do introductions, so um, why don't you introduce yourself first? I'll introduce myself second, and then we can get started.
0: Um, My name's David Ottlinger. I've been a contributor to the Electric Agora since its inception, and um, I'm on a break from studying philosophy at Georgia State University. Before that, I did my undergrad in philosophy at the University of Chicago, and uh, here we sit.
1: University of Chicago said, should I infer from that that you are a Straussian,
0: or should I, should, should I not
1: infer that? <laughs> Those
0: days are long past. You know,
1: your Straussian days are past. Uh, maybe we'll, that, well, that Chicago
0: Straussian days are past. Yeah. Oh,
1: really? So there are no more... Uh, is that a dead letter over there? There's no Alan Bloom acolytes
0: running around? Yeah, no. <laughs>
1: um, well, I'm really very fortunate um, because one of the things that Bob Wright and I talked about was maybe doing some dialogues where we just really introduce the audience to some of the major figures in the history of philosophy, especially some of the ones that are a bit inaccessible. Um, And I'm tremendously fortunate that you actually know something about uh, Kant. Um, What I know about Kant can be fit into about a paragraph. Um, I know enough Kant to be able to sort of fit him into um, a story, uh, but I found Kant always to be tremendously opaque. Um, I'll leave aside the ethics, uh, which I teach regularly, of course, as part of intro, and I'll leave out the aesthetics, uh, the Critique of Judgment, which uh, is actually itself a pretty brutal book. But but because I do aesthetics as one of my main areas, I had to sort of learn that. But we're going to talk about the Critique of Pure Reason, which is the big one, the really important one. And um, and fortunately, David uh, knows quite a bit about this, and so uh, he's a perfect person to uh, educate the audience as well as me. So, um, David, how did you think you'd like to? How do we talked about about how we might do this? How did you want to start today?
0: Well, we I think we ought to just put Kant in a little brief historical context. So, you were talking about the kind of. Um, <clears throat> dime store history of philosophy that everybody who's sort of taught intro philosophy does. And where Kant generally fits into that is the beginning of early modern history, we had some people called um, empiricists who thought that knowledge started with the senses um, and tried to establish their philosophical project based on introspection and empirical knowledge. And then there are people called rationalists um, who tried to have some kind of um, intellectual insight into the way the world is, the metaphysical structure of the world that was more or less a priori in the way we have sort of mathematical knowledge. We can have metaphysical knowledge in the world. <clears throat> and of course, the two trifectas, the empiricists are uh, Hume, Locke in Berkeley, and then um, uh, or Berkeley, excuse me, and um, the rationalists are Leibniz, uh, Spinoza, and Dicker, and then Kant <clears throat> comes along, and somehow he wants to try to put them together. Uh, Why?
1: What's he reacting to? Is it skepticism? Is he is he is he trying to solve the skeptical problems?
0: He says that we go. Back and forth um, between skepticism and dogmatism, and somebody asserts some metaphysical knowledge, but they don't have a strong basis for asserting it, so it becomes dogmatic. So then they naturally give way again to the skeptic, and then the skeptic will want to say there's nothing solid, you know, and then somebody will deny that again. We'll go back and forth. And Kant thinks the only way to solve this is to try to um, try to bring the insights of the two traditions together. Um
1: it just this just occurred to me. Um one might say that Hume already offered a solution to this problem. Um and, and that's generally viewed as sort of the, the, what we call the naturalistic dimension of Hume's philosophy. So Hume gets to these sort of very radically skeptical uh, conclusions and makes a kind of a decision that, or comes to the sort of further conclusion that um, this is the point at which philosophical investigation has to end and we all we can really do, we can't really rationalize our beliefs and, and, and our, our knowledge anymore. At this point, we can only describe what we do from a sort of a naturalistic scientific perspective did Kant reject that solution or do you think he wasn't even aware of that solution, um, that he read Hume as a traditional skeptic?
0: Oh, that's a good question. I'm not, mm, I'm not even sure how distinct they are. because mm, That's interesting. He would sort of, I, Kant's occasionally, he deeply reverent of Hume, but I, he occasionally expresses impatience with him. Mm. And I think he would would definitely say that there's, um, you know, that would not count as a solution. If that's even being proposed as a solution, that would not count. Right. Once someone, he has very strong instincts. Some things just seem really right to him. And something about the metaphysical project seems really right to him.
1: Right, right.
0: He's very loath to give that up.
1: Okay, so. This is where he stands in Enlightenment philosophy. This is who he's reacting to, what he's reacting to. Um, do you want to talk maybe a little bit about what are the, wor- what are the works that are relevant to this particular project? Because we know he also worked in ethics and he worked in, in aesthetics and other areas. But what are the works that are relevant to this, what we're talking about now, to his inter- intervention into the empiricist-rationalist uh, uh, dialectic?
0: Well, particularly, um, <clears throat> there's a guy who wrote, well, actually, this will be good just to say in case people want to learn more about this, is Sebastian Gardner. I, I Gardner or Gardner, I hope, um, something close to that. He wrote a handbook to the Critique of Pure Reason, and he wrote that the two heroes of the critique are um, human Leibniz, and that's a good way to think about it. So when he's thinking about rationalists, he's usually thinking about life. uh Leibniz, and when he's thinking about empiricists, he's usually thinking about him sometimes about Locke, usually about him um, And so um, the inquiry concerning principles of the understanding. Uh, he probably did not read the Treatise of Human Nature. So that's, people argue about that. Um, happy to say that's well over my head or above my pay grade, or I don't have to try to answer it. Right. Um, and then, of course, for Leibniz's discourse of metaphysics and the monotology. Um But also, uh, it's worth saying, in his more, we're talking about more grand scheme, but in his more immediate surroundings, the Germany in which he's working is dominated by this neo-Leibnizian <clears throat> metaphysical speculation. Um, so it's very hev- very rationalist, very heavily indebted to Kant, to Kant heavily indebted to Leibniz. <clears throat> so he's actually sticking his neck out, right, right.
1: And are the key texts, the key Kantian texts, are of course the Critique of Pure Reason, which we're going to talk about, and then would, would the other one be the Prolegomena to Any Future Metaphysics? Yeah.
0: I'm sorry, I I must have misunderstood. No, me. no,
1: that's actually what you just did was good. Even though that's not what I asked, but that's we needed that. So.
0: Yeah, the the key key Kantian texts. Yeah, yeah. So, well, it's it's worth saying um, this is the real kind of dividing point in the Kantian corpus. Everything before the first critique is generally called, generally fairly derisively, the pre-critical Kant. Um, It's pretty widely agreed that most references you see, writings about it, is just kind of, tracing the evolution of its thought. I don't think almost anyone sees anything really exciting philosophically in the pre-critical works. But 1781, uh, the Critique of Pure Reason appears, and um, uh, it's not an instant success. It's greeted a certain amount of um, confusion. Some people said, what is this? Some people said, well, we know all this already. This is just <laughs> Leibniz again, and there's a particular review, the Garva Theder review, um, which it was a negative review that was when, then badly edited to seem more negative, um, <clears throat> which made Kant furious, and he immediately wrote, wrote a, I don't have it here, a little, a little tiny book. This is, this is the critique of pure reason.
1: Right. Not a tiny book.
0: Not a tiny book. <laughs> um, and then he wrote a, you know, it has, it's one of those little hacket editions that you can, you know, close, you can your fingers touch if you put your hands on the very side of it. Um, and it, it's called, it's called the Prolegomena, Prolegomena, to, and Prolegomena meaning something like prologue. Um, Prolegomena to any future metaphysics that may arise as a science. And basically, it's a little compendium of um, of the original Critique of Pureism. came out 1783, and it's written in a much pissier mood. Um, he's very angry about the reviews, and he's really trying to put this across. <coughs>
1: Um, so sort of like, here, let me put it sim- much simply, simpler for you poor people who fail to understand the first <laughs> no, time. First, yeah, <laughs> like,
0: yeah, it's sort of like what you hear occasionally, like, I guess we don't read long books anymore. <laughs> let me cut it down for you. Um, not naming any names on the contemporary. So. Right,
1: right, right, right. Um,
0: and then <clears throat> uh, in 1787 he comes out with a substantially revised and re-edited version of the critique.
1: So is that the A versus the B?
0: That's the A and the B.
1: Okay, so maybe you'll need to talk about that a little bit, because it's very important, but probably people don't (coughs) realize it until you actually look in the thing and you start seeing this A, B. Maybe talk a little bit about the the A versus the B version. should I show people? Sure, if if it'll it'll come across.
0: I think so. So, Oh, yeah, it
1: says A250 there.
0: And if you go a little higher, A249. Oh, did I open to something that's A only?
1: Yeah. <laughs> okay, here. No, here. Okay, so I see A and then B. Yeah. Right. Okay, so, so explain that to
0: people. Right. So it went into a second edition, and um, he published uh, – uh, comp- he published – the book again in 1787 with uh, a new preface, a substantially new introduction. Um, which it's now we're going to talk about the Copernican Revolution.
1: Yes, that's right. Which,
0: nice. yeah. which is the B preface. Gotcha. <coughs> meaning, meaning
1: that the remarks he makes about the Copernican, the comparison he makes with that occurs in the B, in the B version, in the preface. Okay, go on.
0: So. Um, a different preface, different introduction. He completely or he really substantially rewrites um, different parts of the book, important book parts like the Purologisms, and he uh, works with the Transcendental Aesthetic, but the big thing, the biggest thing um, is uh, he completely rewrites what a lot of people see as the heart of the book, the transcendental deduction. And um, he also adds a complete new part called The Refutation of Idealism, which is his refutation of external world skepticism or how do we know there's stuff out there? Yeah. He gives uh, uh, his answer to that in there. But, you know, it's a, like I said, it's a big old book. And so, does it at all, is it
1: really a matter of being a much more fuller development of the original A, or does there stuff that outright contradicts or rejects that stuff that's in A?
0: Oh, Dan, it depends on who you ask.
1: <laughs> well, I'm asking you. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's nothing. Well, I was, I was about to say now, every day you get any edition you get, this is the standard, this is the Cambridge. But any edition is going to be a conflated edition of both, of both, and like I showed you the 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 marginal pagination. Yeah, those are based on the Royal Prussian Academy versions, <laughs> the A version and the B version. So when you when you see the A down in the margin, you know that the text underneath that letter until you see another one appear on A page two seventy four and B on page. You know, gotcha. uh, two forty-one or whatever it is. <clears throat> um, so no, so I mean, the mere fact <clears throat> that they're always interpolated makes the point that they're more or less the same book. I mean, it's a revised version of the same book. Now, some people, a lot of people, think he came to greater clarity in the B edition. <clears throat> um, you know, someone. Uh no less than Heidegger thought that the B version was a betrayal of the A version. <clears throat> I've occasionally thought that So there they're... were
1: people that rejected the B version, rejected some of the additional yeah. elaborations and
0: mm-hmm. because the reason
1: I asked was because, you know, you said he reacted very negatively, angrily to the to the negative press in the first one, in the A version he wrote the prolegomena and then he did this B version. I'm wondering if despite his being angry at some level, he realized there was something wrong with the A version that needed, needed work. Or do you think that that's not the case?
0: Well, I don't know if he realized it because of the reviews. There's a famous footnote to work at. I don't, I don't know very well. Um, and very few people do called the foundations of natural science. Um, where um, <coughs> he was kind of delivering his um philosophy of science, basically, which was sort of set up in particular pure reason. And there's a footnote very early on <coughs> where he starts thinking about judgment, which he hasn't thought about before, and then <coughs> the reworked version of this very important passage, um of the transcendental deduction is reworked in terms of judgment. So, I mean, this is the sort of thing that sees the thing gets spilled over. It's, uh, you know, what exactly caused. First of all, these passages are very, very difficult. And so, <clears throat> merely saying what is the change from the A to B
1: is already a job in itself, right? huge job so to start figuring out why he made the changes and whether he was reacting to i'll i'll only ask because you know there's a similar at least superficially similar story that hume released the treatise and the treatise did very poorly and i don't know whether he was angry or not but he released the inquiry as a sort of an effort to remedy maybe obscurities that were in the treatise but an awful lot of people think that the enquiries, while stylistically superior, are actually philosophically inferior to the treatise. That they're they're too simplified. Now, in this case, Kant obviously didn't simplify; he elaborated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just wondering whether he did so. He did it because he realized that, in some sense, the critics were right. There was a problem with the, with the A version, either that things weren't explained well enough or that they were explained obscurely. Uh, that's the only reason I asked. It's not. It's yeah. not. I mean,
0: yeah, you, know, you mentioned this. You mentioned this before. It's interesting because. Yeah. Hume famously said that the master passion of his life was a desire for literary fame. And obviously, he was 26 when the the treatise, if I remember correctly. Yeah, which
1: is shocking in itself, right? Makes me feel (laughs) very inadequate.
0: (laughs) And, um, um, but maybe being so young, he thought he could somehow get literary fame writing a book like the treatise, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> realized you don't. Right. <laughs> but then he wrote the really elegantly written, much shorter enquiries. Kant never wanted literary fame. Um, he never wrote any, in fact, you've read the third critique, so you know he gets even more turgid. Yes. <laughs> he, and, um, no, there's no sense of a loss of rigor between the A and B. He's not dumbing it down for anybody. Gotcha. There, may, There's sometimes people feel that way about the prolegomenum. Which is not friendly, but it is supposed to be more digestible. It's shorter.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's maybe move on now. I think we have a good enough framework and background that people won't feel like the critique is just being dropped on them from the sky. So let's now get into the first first critique, aka the critique of pure reason. Um, um, And you wanted to start with this analogy with the Copernican Revolution, which I agree is really important. If we get it right, people will really have an intuitive sense of what the whole thing is about. So why don't you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, it's a natural starting point, I think. there's um, <clears throat> He's talking about Copernicus, and um, you and I were talking about it. <clears throat> Copernicus was, wasn't exactly new stuff, but he was closer to it, and much closer to it than we are today. Right. <clears throat> so there was still... You know, people talk about Descartes of the Meditations right after people were really getting used to the idea that the the, uh, the earth goes around the sun, and there's a sense of shock, and if we can get that wrong, how can we get anything right? Right, um, right,
1: right, of course.
0: And there's, I think there's still a lingering sense like that in Kant. Um, and he says, you know, and he's... He has um, the usual science envy of philosophers in those period. He wants his um, he wants his philosophy to be scientific. He's very um, bashful about the fact that philosophy has not produced the kind of unanimity and reliability of some of the sciences. Yeah. Um, although he may have been a little naive about the sciences if we want to talk about that, but <clears throat> he, he looked at this revolution and he said, what we need is a revolution to finally stop fiddling around and going round and around to the same points and having the same arguments over and over again in different forms. We need to um, <coughs> have this kind of revolution. In in um, philosophy, and he says the exact same thing Hume said. And it's like you may think it's not coming, but everyone thought that about physics until Newton showed up. And now I'm going to show you the new tone. I'm going to be Newton for philosophy. Right. And he said, you know, uh, Copernicus started by thinking. We have all these problems. We can't chart the stars appropriately. Maybe we should stop thinking we're the ones who are standing still <coughs> and the stars are moving and start think, um, the stars are standing still and we are moving. And Kant thinks we need something similar. But the, the shift instead of going from the earth moving to from the stars moving, it's now before we've always assumed that the object that our cognition conforms to objects. We now need to take this revolutionary step and say, objects conform to our cognition.
1: Okay, but that's I mean, I get that immediately, but maybe we could say just <laughs> elaborate that a little bit. So we're talking about our knowledge of the world, right? Right, yes. So you know I know certain things about this object, this cup, right? Um, what's the old view, it, or the or the the, the the view that's getting us into trouble is the view that my knowledge of this is a matter of my mind and somehow producing a picture that corresponds to what this thing actually is, right? Okay. Right.
0: So here, can you yeah can you pull it, right? Okay, so there. <laughs> I'm I'm going to call it white. I'm going to call it um, sort of, what would you do, thimble-shaped?
1: Yeah, why not?
0: Um, and shiny. Right. And you're touching it, so you can probably tell if it's warm. So the, the old way of thinking was there is a warm, thimble-shaped, white, shiny object, and then it causes us to have thimble-shaped, shiny, white, warm cognition. And that's what
1: knowledge knowledge is.
0: And that's what knowledge is like. There are those things out in the world, and they are a certain way in the world, and then they cause us to have cognitions, and they cause our cognitions to be a certain way.
1: Okay.
0: Now he thinks, well, this is going to be obscure, right? But he thinks the object is going to conform to our cognition. So So those,
1: those qualities you just talked about. Its shape, its color, its its the way it feels and stuff. He's going to switch it around and say, "That's the object conforming to us, yes, not us conforming to the object."
0: Um, now let me, and, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think I think sort of natural thing. I hope the audience is thinking, like, "Isn't that insane?" Right. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. right, right. Is, is right. that
0: stupid? Right. How could it count as knowledge? It would. It would, just our ex- experience of life would be a mass hallucination
1: that's certainly what it sounds like at first glance yes <laughs> um let me ask you before we get into the details of this um is this though entirely a is this an entirely new innovation of kant or was or were the or or was the the philosophy already drifting this way so here's here's what i'm getting at you have throughout both the empiricist and the rationalist traditions the belief that the qualities of objects are divided into primary and secondary categories, with the idea being that some of the qualities of this object really do belong to the object out in the world, and what happens when we come to know it is that our mind conforms to its qualities. But there are also qualities of the object, the so-called secondary qualities, which don't belong to the object in the world, but which are furnished by our minds right, and by the kinds of sense apparatus that we have, uh, and uh, those secondary qualities therefore really are the object conforming uh, to us to the point to which a creature with different sense organs would have a very different piece of knowledge because the secondary qualities of the object would be different from the primary. In other words, so instance, was this idea already in the air before Kant came along? And
0: Well, uh, in a In asking about, does this idea have kind of precedent?
1: Yeah, I guess that's what I'm asking, yeah.
0: Then, yeah, I wouldn't immediately run towards secondary and primary qualities. Um, because I mean, well, to answer what you put to me about primary and secondary qualities, Kant's at least an incredible radicalization of this because he sees... All of the properties is dependent upon our form of cognition, right? And maybe we'll 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 have to talk about this in uh, quite a bit later into the conversation. But maybe he thinks the object itself is something that we produce,
1: not just st- the qualities of the object, but the but the object itself. Yeah,
0: object yeah. that that um, instantiates. So yeah, 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 objects, yeah, yeah. So it's at least a real radicalization. <laughs> but I mean, there's a different way in which... Um, I'm, I'm trying to think if maybe this is too much inside ball, but <laughs> where Kant, our different thinkers before Kant, like Hume, thought that we didn't actually see objects. We saw... Um, Impressions of objects, basically, right. sense data, like right? Mental
1: pictures, yeah.
0: Mental pictures, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so there is a kind of in a lot of um, a lot of modern philosophy a kind of subjectivizing of experience.
1: Which Kant, which Kant does not do, right?
0: Well, no, uh, Kant. Kant faces I think what's really unique and valuable about Kant is he faces down this paradox and what's difficult and about it but what's potentially insightful about it.
1: Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, and I really was only making the comparison just purely on the ground on uh, with respect to the idea the radical notion of the object conforming to us rather than us conforming to the object. Certainly, Kant is a radicalizes the 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 way in which the amount of conforming that yeah. in that reverse. But you know, part of the reason why. The Locks and the Descartes think that what we perceive is a mental object, is 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 a mental picture, is precisely because this has both primary and secondary qualities. Right? (laughs) We know intellectually that it really only has primary qualities, but the thing we're perceiving has both, and so it's not a crazy then thing to say. Well, what we're seeing is not the thing in itself. What we're seeing is a mental representation of the thing in itself, which has both the properties that the thing actually has and the ones that we contribute. And In a sense, almost like you know, I, when I teach this stuff in my classes, that the world of our experience is almost like, uh, uh, is like, is like, is like an image projected on a screen, right? It's like mm-hmm. seeing, it's like, it's like the relationship between the, what you see in the screen in a movie theater, uh, and and the projector that's projecting the image, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, that. And, and so that's that's the reason why I, brought I only brought it up on this very bare, minimal point about reversing this idea of knowledge, that knowledge is not a matter of us conforming to the, the thing known, but the thing known, in a sense, conforming to us.
0: Mm-hmm. And it
1: does seem to me, at least, that that, that distinction between primary and secondary qualities, which does then lead Enlightenment philosophers to think of objects as, in a sense, mental objects, um, um, or there is a double object, there's the mental object and then the thing in the world, Um Um, is a reaction to that effort to sort of switch around from the uh, us conforming to the object to the object conforming to us. That's the only reason I raise it. I mean, I realize, of course, that Kant is much more radical. He wants to say all the properties, not just the secondary ones, are, um, to a sense, a matter of the object conforming to us. But I just wondered whether he really, whether the Copernican revolution had already started because people were already thinking about this at least partially in the way that he, that he was thinking about it.
0: Maybe. Um, I'm just trying to think, um, I think, well, I think the best I can do, uh, to offer is I think he talks about, I was about to say he doesn't talk much about or uh, talk much about secondary and primary qualities, but I believe he does in, um, the transcendental aesthetic. and Actually, I think he rejects the idea.
1: Like, I, I would think he would have to reject the idea yeah, because um, he's going to reject that whole very crude, subjective, objective right.
0: distinction
1: that it rests upon, right? There's things that are in here and then there's things that are out there. He's right. going to problematize all of that to the point to which you really can't say it anymore, right? Right. Yeah,
0: right. yeah. yeah. Um, Yeah, so uh, I guess all I can offer you beyond that is just kind of point in the direction of transcendental aesthetic, which is, I think, the only place where he really talks about primary and secondary qualities.
1: So we've got this idea of the Copernican Revolution and what Kant is going to do, at least in in the abstract, and so why don't you start getting into the the details of it. I don't know if you want to do um, the synthetic a priori stuff first or whether you want to talk about receptivity and activity first, but whatever, however you want to get into it. Why don't you start, and I'll try to keep up.
0: <laughs> right. Um, well, yeah, we think we should go to the synthetic a priori. So, sure. Um,
1: if you need my cup again, just tell me to hold it up, and I'll. <laughs>
0: <laughs> good. Um, good example. It's got a lot of properties. Right. <laughs> um, the, the synthetic a priori is supposed to flesh out this idea of the Copernican Revolution. We said that we're going to give something to the objects. Well, I don't think we even said that. (laughs) We said that the objects will conform to us and to our cognition. Right. And Kant thinks we're going to give a certain content to it, or actually we're going to give a kind of form to it. And so what is it that we're going to give? Well, we're going to give the synthetic a priori. So we need to um, break that down. (laughs) So there's a little ponnet square going on here. of A priori and a posteriori, um, synthetic and analytic. A priori and a posteriori are pretty easy, even though they sound more menacing. (laughs) A priori is basically prior prior to experience, um, without any knowledge of experience. So think of mathematical or logical knowledge. If you want to know if the law of excluded middle P or not P is true, or if you want to know if 2 plus 2 equals 4, or I was going to use a geometric example, but that wouldn't make contact, so I won't. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, you don't go out and check to see if those things are true. Um, you, they're true a priori, prior to any experience.
1: You might need to explain that a little bit, because someone might say, well, wait a minute, that's exactly how I learned that 2 plus oh. 2 plus was 4. I counted beans, right? Somebody put beans in front of me and said, here's two beans, here's another two beans, you count them all and get four. And why does that not make it empirical? <laughs>
0: Right, right. Yeah. Why is
1: it? Why is it nonetheless a priori?
0: Look, um, <clears throat> you when you were a kid, you had two beans, and then I had two beans, and then had four beans, <clears throat> and you did that several times, and then um, you learn, you got. You got to where you said, oh, 2 plus 2 equals 4. I get it. Now.
1: Right. It works for everything, not just beans. It works for, you know. <laughs> yes, <So>. right.
0: <laughs> uh, which, okay, I'm not going to say that. No. Nope. <laughs> but now what if somebody told you that they had two beans and then one bean, and they put them together and they had four beans?
1: Well, I'd say lay them out. Let's do the counting, right?
0: (laughs) Well, you might say lay it out if you just want to laugh at them, but presumably you know beforehand that they're either confused or they're just wrong, right? You might say don't know what they're saying.
1: But you're saying it's not because I perform an induction on the basis of my past examples. It's because the past examples unveiled or revealed a kind of rule. Right. So maybe this is, we just, we want to distinguish between the way you come to learn something and what it is that confirms or disconfirms something.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's where I was going. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, you, you, this, this proves that it's not like um, swans are white, where you see another white swan and you see another, you're sure swans are white, but maybe when you get out to Australia, like somebody says, I saw some black swans, you can't go, That's impossible. I've seen all these white swans. (laughs) Swans have to be white. Right, right. right. Because you could have done that a lot more times than the beans to see if 2 plus 2 equals 4. That's right, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Whereas 2 plus 2 equals 4, no, you now know that that... It's not just that that isn't, it's that that can't be. And that shows that you're understanding this based on a kind of rule. (laughs) And you now know that... um, No, maybe through a glass dark layer, you'd have trouble articulating it, but 2 plus 1 equals 4 is contradictory. Um, 1 plus 2 equals 4 is contradictory. Gotcha, yeah. And so there there are certain rules that these, the way we use these objects to addition for uh, equation equal.
1: Equality, Yeah,
0: yeah. (laughs) They they only go together by certain rules, and um, they just the rules dictate that they don't go together that way. If you say two plus one equals four,
1: right, and it's not as if anybody could amass evidence to oh to disconfirm, exactly. right, 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 right. Although I mean I don't you know we're not going to get no. to like Quine would say yeah no, <laughs> don't, there, there is don't get there could the, be sufficient domain. evidence. <laughs> All right. Um, Right, so so,
0: and presumably the same would go for logic. So you would know yes. if p then q, p therefore q. Right, right. You, you you know these things without needing further evidence. Okay,
1: so they're both. So this is what we mean by known a priori versus known a posteriori. Known a posteriori is what we what we normally call empirical knowledge. It's knowledge that comes as the result of experience and is confirmed or disconfirmed by experience. And a priori knowledge is knowledge that is known independently of experience in the sense that it is confirmed or disconfirmed independently of experience. Now, what about analytic and synthetic?
0: All right. This is, well, we made that one hard, but this one's. No, it wasn't hard. (laughs) This one's the harder of the two. So there are, says Kant, two different kinds of. This is not a Kantian word, but we'll say propositions. Um, so, or two kinds of statement, right? Um, and they're called analytic and synthetic, and they're called this in relation to these different processes, analysis and synthesis, um, sure. by which we're going to tell whether they're true and false. So, Um, some objects, some statements, or I I, I settled on propositions. Some propositions, to understand if they're true or false, we need to analyze the concepts. So I wanted to say, when I say both analysis and synthesis as uh, mental processes, we're talking about analysis and synthesis of representations, and particularly of concepts. Okay. So.
1: So to give you an example, so one concept would be cup, and another concept would be white. Right. Say, right.
0: Okay. So well, let's let's even sharpen that up because cup is not a subject, right? So if you want to say this cup is white, <laughs> um, well, I'll say that later. This cup is white that's synthetic. What am I doing there? I'm synthesizing um, these representations, cup and white, and we have this other kind of representation, this. This cup is white, and we're putting them together, and then once we've synthesized them, put them together, we match them up, or we put them up against the world, and we say, well, there's, there's the cup,
1: and it is white. <laughs> it is
0: white, therefore it's true. Right. If I said this cup is black and I matched it up against it would the world. It be false, right. It would be false. Right. Yeah. Some statements are, so that's, so it's a statement like this cup is white or all cups are white or some cups are white. Um, I put them together and then I match them against the world, right? You synthesis, gonna,
1: synthesis meaning you put two pieces together to create a piece that has both pieces in, in it, right?
0: Yeah, both pieces, which will right. I'll become a little clearer when we talk about analysis. Right. But um, both in the sense that they're distinct. Right. And that will become clearer. Right. But we put them together, and then we um, match them up. So all such propositions where if we want to know whether it's true or false – we have to put them together and match them up against the world. We're going to call those synthetic prepositions. Gotcha. Um, then we have analytic prepositions.
1: Bachelors are unmarried.
0: I hate to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, I was also going to say all bachelors are unmarried. <clears throat> so... Um, <coughs> We, this is back to the beans and the adding, right? <clears throat> if I say all bachelors are unmarried, <clears throat> you know, tell me if all bachelors are unmarried. You don't go like, ah, uh, here we go. I got to like, start
1: interviewing. Bachelors. I got to start interviewing people, right? Yes. I <laughs> I, all,
0: all the bachelors. See if they're unmarried. <clears throat> no, um, you don't have to. You don't have to do that, but why don't you? What? What? If you don't have to mat, go match up in the world like this cup is, white to tell if it's true or false? What do you have to tell you if it's true or false? Because it seems like we know all bachelors are unmarried. It's just true. The,
1: the meaning of the word bachelor. You realize includes the word in the, the word unmarried.
0: Right. <laughs> right. And I mean, being that this is the twenty-first century, <laughs> where we've naturally fallen into a linguistic idiom.
1: Right. Which you, want to, which you want to resist, because it misunderstands Kant.
0: Well, we don't have to resist it, but Kant, it would be foreign to Kant. Um, Kant would say, these aren't words, these are um, concepts. So what we'd have is the, the concept of Bachelor. And the concept of Bachelor, we analyze, right? And analyze in its proper sense of breaking down into its component parts.
1: Right, 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 right.
0: So... Bachelors, all bachelors are unmarried. What is a bachelor? Bachelor is an unmarried man. <laughs> um, <clears throat> um, so we remember we have, we're looking inside bachelor now. Um, we have all bachelors are unmarried, and then we looked inside and we said bachelors are unmarried males. So it's like the thing that we join together. Um, is already to, a part of this, part it's of the, right. already, it's already in right. the subject.
1: Right, 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 right. I think he actually uses the expression containment, right? Containment, right? Yes. Where, where, where the predicate is already contained within the subject, you have an analytic statement, right? Because in order to find it's true, all you have to do is take apart, analyze right, yes. the first concept in the statement, and then you'll find that it c- contains the second concept in the statement.
0: Or it contains the contradiction, as in all bachelors are married.
1: right, the, uh, right, 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 right. That's to be analytically false, right, right.
0: Right. It's necessarily, it's always the thing that's going to contradict it is already inside. Yeah. So back earlier to my promissory note is I when I said synthesis, um, we're putting it together, and Dan said two different things, both. Yeah, two different things, two um, distinct representations, right? A representation that's not contained in the other. Right. Those are synthetic. <clears throat> um, whereas the representations that are contained in other or are <clears throat> the contradiction is contained between them, those are analytic. Um, um, should we just stop to say, because it seems silly. Well, let, let me first say this. So notice the psychological idiom here is we're talking about concepts. uh uh-huh in their functions, and we're talking about these two, anal- analysis and th- synthesis, which he thinks of as psychological functions.
1: There's psycho- psychological operations that we can perform operations. upon these concepts that we have, right?
0: Yeah. There's, and so just, a propo-
1: it's actually better to use proposition than statement, because a proposition could be seen as a mentally entertained sort of
0: yeah.
1: string of concepts, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, right.
0: Yeah, or even thought would, you know, have a certain... Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: um, Yeah, and uh, there's... um, I don't know much about it. I haven't read a book, but Patricia Kitcher, um, you know, has a whole book talking about this in light of modern cognitive psychology. I forget what it's called. It's like the action space.
1: Well, if you can find it later, we can, you know, we always put a whole bunch of links on on these dialogues, so... One thing I'll do is I'll email you, you know, privately after we're done, and I'll say, "Hey, send me whatever links you can have, you can think of for the stuff." And so, if you can hunt some of these things down, you can link to it either, uh, you know, on Amazon or, or or Goodreads or something if there's <laughs> a summary. Um, so, I, th- I think actually your pr- your presentation of this sort of distinction is very clear. Now the trick is to explain the relevance of it. So how, how we were right. talking about c- the Copernican Revolution that Kant. Con- wants to reverse the way we typically think of knowledge. Knowledge is a matter of our minds conforming to the way the world is. It's in many in a, in many senses the world conforming to the way that our minds are. Then you introduce this notion that we can both synthesize concepts and just put them together to create certain kinds of um, uh, propositions that are made true or false by virtue of how the world is. And we can also perform a kind of analysis where we take apart concepts and realize that the thing that the proposition states is merely ascribing something that is already contained within within uh, the initial concept, like bachelors are unmarried, or like squares or rectangles or any sort of sentence like this. Um, how uh-huh. does how do these now fit together to get us to the next part? Right. So right.
0: Well, I need the other part too. Which okay. Is the a priori. The, I'm amount. sorry. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Right. So the a priori <clears throat> was the stuff that we know it is true by following the rules by right prior to any experience, and yeah, posteriori is the empirical stuff. The stuff we know only after, we only know whether it's true or false after we've had the experience. <coughs> it's posterior to experience. Right. So, put these together into a ponet square, synthetic, analytic, a priori, a posteriori. So, we're going to combine, make all the possible combinations. Um, so, the um, analytic, a priori, Analytic just kind of is a priori, so right?
1: It's the only way you know these things because you don't look to the world; you look to the actual internal content of the
0: concept. Right. So synthetic, are um, excuse me, analytic a priori good. We understand that, right? <laughs> analytic a posteriori doesn't, doesn't really make any sense. No, we can exercise for the reader. Try to think of one. Doesn't really make sense. Um, Synthetic a posteriori. Right. Easy. Right. Right. That's Swans good. are white. Yeah, right. Squirrels yeah. are furry. Right. <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. And also, like the, the cup and the direct. Right. Experiential knowledge where, um, it's, in some ways, it's the easiest words, because it's, you match the representation up to the reality sort of right in the here and now. Right. <clears throat> so that's all good. Then we got one square left. Synthetic and a priori. (coughs) So, go back to what we mean by synthetic. So this is maybe another dimension of the synthetic analytic distinction I didn't quite hit on. Is but the synthetic, if you say all bachelors are unmarried, you're not saying anything more about bachelors than when you just said all bachelors.
1: If you know what a bachelor is, you already know this, and so you're not learning. Right. There's nothing new being conveyed
0: by this. So Kant generally thinks they don't have, well, he thinks they have a kind of content, but they don't have any content about the world. <laughs> he actually thinks this is quite, this this will uh, interest you, I think, you know, because it's very important to the philosophy of language that came later is For Kant, because of this, because the concepts themselves are what make them analytic statements, true or false. Analytic statements are about concepts. They're not about the world. Because Kant thinks whatever makes them true or false, that has to be what they're about. And so the uh, the synthetic a posteriori is about the world. Um, You know, if you say that cup is white, it's nothing, it's not about the concept cup, right? right. It's about that cup, and it's being white, and that thing being a cup.
1: Yeah, it's important to say that, because actually the Kantian, that that way of looking at the analytic is a bit counterintuitive, right? Because when I say bachelors are unmarried, it certainly sounds to me like I'm talking about the marital status of my friend down the street.
0: Right. Um, right. um, um, It also just seems like a meaningful sentence in English. Right,
1: right. Um, It's not like I
0: said, blah, 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 blah.
1: Right, 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 right. Um, um, and interestingly, actually that what you just said now, w- that when you say an analytically false statement, mm-hmm. bachelors are married, it's not gibberish. It's not like you said blah, blah blah, 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 right. Uh, it does convey some sort of content, even though it's necessarily false, right?
0: If we weren't, if it were gibberish, we wouldn't be able to say that's false. Let alone that is necessarily false.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: There's that a certain rich content there.
1: Right. So, what about the synthetic a
0: priori? The synthetic a priori, he thinks. All right, now keep all of. We got to get all of this in a line. He thinks there's some kind of statements, some propositions that are, um, have content about the world. They're synthetic. They're not just trailing out of concepts. They have content about the world, but they're a priori.
1: They're known and, a priori.
0: Yeah, they're prior to experience.
1: Right. So, so in, in terms of what we've been talking about in the bigger picture,
0: mm-hmm.
1: this dimension of his, his philosophy is the most rationalistic, right, because it represents the idea that he thinks we can have knowledge about the world that's not ultimately confirmed or disconfirmed by observation by empirical evidence in that sense he's with the rationalists right because the empiricists reject the synthetic a priori they think there's no such thing right
0: that's a good place to i think take a step forward into the next part <laughs> because that is that's absolutely right where that's we talked about he's he wants to get something from the Empiricist, something from the rationalist, <clears throat> he's saying that we can assert these things <clears throat> prior to, um, prior to uh, experience, but he says that, I'm not sure if that last sentence made sense, sorry, he wants to say that we can make these statements prior to experience, but he also says, I don't want to be dogmatic, I don't want to just assert these things. I want to have a basis for asserting them. Right, right. Um,
1: an account, a justification for... Justification. for right, 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 right. Uh, as opposed to saying they're intuitive or they're foundational or they're basic right. or whatever. He wants right. to actually give an account. Um, 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 one thing just to, to, before we move on, just to clarify, the example he gives of a synthetic a priori statement is seven plus five equals 12. Okay, right. Um, and And... And it, if this is going to take you too far off, if you just don't want to deal with this, just say so, and we'll, uh, we'll drop it. But it's interesting to note that that statement of arithmetic is supposed to be synthetic a priori. But if I was to make a statement in geometry like squares or rectangles, it would be analytic. Not for Kant. So the concept well, of a rectangle is not contained within the concept of a square? Of course it is.
0: Actually, geometry has got more of a leg to stand on.
1: Both. Isn't a square defined as a kind of rectangle?
0: But those definitions for Kant, and I, I will punt, but just briefly. Um, for Kant, all knowledge of math and geometry is based on some knowledge of space and time. Okay, that which is going to come up. Yeah, okay, I got gotcha. Okay And it's, it's a very vexed problem. And by the way, his proof That mathematics, with geometry, is kind of an interesting leg to stand on. But um, with mathematics, his proof that um, mathematics uh, is synthetic a priori and not analytic and a priori is exactly the bean account that we rejected earlier. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. But Kant's wrong. We're
1: right, 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 right. Kant's wrong about
0: it. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay, um, so, so go on then. Forget about my detour. Go on. Um, We've got a synthetic a priori. Now, where does this play into the right. so like- project?
0: We have the synthetic a priori. It's a range of statements we want to make about the world. <clears throat> they're meaningful. They're contentful. <clears throat> but we don't want to just assert them dogmatically. So, what basis do we have to assert them? By the way, everything we've just done is pretty much through the introduction.
1: Right, which is shocking. <laughs> that's <an> our <laughs> discussion. We're not even out of the introduction.
0: So, no, but that's, um, whatever, what well, I know that's depressing, but, <laughs> but I also wanted to say that's appropriate because now with that question, how do we found them? we're going to start critiquing pure reason. Gotcha. So how? What, what possible basis could we have for that? And with that, Kant says, let's examine reason itself and look for answers. So you, you might think, well, why pick that? Why would that be a hopeful direction? In the B critique, remember, he said, well, I, did, I don't think I use this word. He, we were talking about the Copernican Revolution. He said, let's follow this as a hypothesis and see if it gets us farther than people have gotten in the past. So for the moment, we're just following this as a hypothesis. So critiquing pure reason. So we talked about this content that we give to the world, this synthetic a priori content. Um he, think it, he thinks it comes from two places, <clears throat> and again, we're going to start talking about kind of functions of the mind. And there's content we get from the active faculties of the mind, and the content that we get from the receptive faculties of the mind. <clears throat> so, Kant takes the receptive first. I guess I'll take the receptive.
1: First. So, what are, you're going to explain what these mean. I take it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So,
0: <laughs> The idea is roughly (coughs) that, you know, it is a very old idea in philosophy that goes back to at least Aristotle, which is our experiences are sort of partly what we get from the world and partly us acting on what we get from the world and there are all kinds of different versions of this story <laughs> with their own problems and complications. But um, Kant, and this is one of those, a lot of ink spilt theories, but Kant seems to have something like this in mind where <clears throat> we just get some things in and then we act on them by the active faculties of the mind. So just in version, you know, in trying to make it intuitive like <clears throat> just having your eyes open <clears throat> there's um uh, Morris Schleck a great mid-century empiricist, said if you want to have just the pure receptive content in the of the mind you just go up look at the sky and don't think <laughs> And his idea was, you'll you'll just have a, you won't have the concept blue, but you'll have an experience of blueness.
1: Yeah, I right? don't know. I don't know if I think that works, but okay. Uh,
0: <laughs> but um, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, there's well,
1: we can intellectually come think of the idea of that prior to which we act upon it, right? <laughs> however, right. We wanna, however we want to, however we want to characterize that, right?
0: Right. Right, and it's sort of like, um, I'm just trying to sell people on this kind of at an intuitive level, because I think phrased correctly, it has an intuitive force, right? Mm -hmm. Like some things you need to think about and say, oh, what is that? But some things just sort of come in, you might think. Gotcha. And Kant thinks, um, like, um, colors and shapes and... Um, sizes. You just sort of see them. It's not like computer where I have to actively come up with the right concept. But just saying like square, bright pattern, that just sort of comes in, right? Maybe.
1: Maybe. I don't know. I mean, square seems to me like it requires conceptualization, right? Um, um, It would seem to me if you really wanted to, without begging all sorts of questions... Speak of unconceptualized experience. You could only speak of it in terms of a purely indexical, right? So a thisish experience. That's really all you could say. Because the minute you start saying red, or the minute you start, you're now, you're now engaged in rule governed behavior. Now, right? I mean, is
0: this you're, you're, a, a Russellian thought? Well,
1: it's a Wittgensteinian thought, right? I mean, any, any substantial concept is going to have is going to be rule-governed, right? There's correct and incorrect ways to use red, right? And so that can't be a, a, a preconceptual uh, experience, right? It's just a vicious experience, and this one's a that-ish experience, right? But once yeah, I start attaching words to them, it seems put, to me...
0: Yeah, well, we're putting the cart before the horse, I think, um, yeah. which is my fault, but... <laughs> um, okay, well, here's one way that I think cop think about it. Um, It can't be that our cognition is just all by itself in activity without any input from the world, because then we'd just be spinning our wheels.
1: Right. There's we no material to. There's no material to work with. Sort of like Locke's idea that you have to have ideas of sensation before you can have ideas of reflection, because there has to be material upon which to to reflect. And so, yes, that's why I said intellectually we can make a sense of unacted upon input, but I don't know that we could ever say anything substantive about it simply because to do so would be to employ the concepts that are already involve a kind of activity. Right.
0: This is so. This is where. Kant gets very interesting, because at times he seems to have a really strong idea that we just get these receptive things called intuitions, and on which we kind of apply concepts. Okay. And so I'm looking at a computer, I get a bunch of kind of features, um, I just get a pure intuition, and then I apply the concept computer. how exactly that works is hard to <clears throat> hard to figure out. Sometimes he talks about um, there are these two. There's the active quality of the of mind, and there's the passive faculty of the mind. And the active faculty is identified with concepts, and the passive quality is um, <clears throat> identified with intuitions. And he seems to think intuitions, whatever we are, whatever we have, are um, are not concepts. Sometimes that really seems like what he's saying. Other times, it seems he talks about intuitions being synthesized and being synthesized and given a certain form that seems to be conceptual. So this is one of those areas where <laughs> this was a big um big inspiration for Wilfred Sellers and the critique of the given. Right. Which Kant was struggling with. And this is a big area where Kant influenced Hegel. Um, And there's some, I started reading at least a a much more recent study by Ray Langton, who just said, eh, all of that is very un-Kantian. He says intuitions are not concepts, so... Whatever intuitions
1: means. are things to which we apply concepts, right? Right. Right. And then, right, 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 right. And, and so, I mean, maybe it, probably if we think of an intuition as sort of the raw, unconceptualized information that comes into the receptive faculty, which then the active faculty operates upon, then the intuitions would be something like what a 20th century positive would call sense data, right?
0: It'd be something but, along those lines. But, all right, I'll just... I'll just note, there's a, there's a, and this is one of those really, what I've always found reading Kant very worthwhile is these kinds of textual uh, instabilities. They go, he goes back and forth, but he goes back and forth for very deep reasons. (laughs) And watching him go back and forth, and the reason he goes back and forth is, um, very informing but um this i kind of, i'm sorry i got us into a bog but i was talking about the synthetic a priori and i said that the um the active faculties add some content and the receptive faculties add some content so hopefully we um convinced you that there is a difference between the active and the passive faculties, um, and then made then maybe started to unconvince you, but Kant is at least officially convinced.
1: I think it's clearly, it's understandable enough. I mean, they are both providing content to what's going to get synthesized. Right. But the content that they're providing, in a sense, has different sources, right? Right. Yes. And I think that's intuitive enough, even if we the weeds of it gets sort of messy. I think that by itself is intuitive enough. So,
0: well, there's, so I want to just go through briefly. Um, he thinks the form of the receptive faculties are space and time. So we receive impressions from the world, or Excuse me, we receive intuitions from the world. Um, when we receive them, we receive them spatio-temporally. We and this is where this is another place where it gets tricky because it's supposed to be purely passive, but we organize them. They we receive them in a way such that they're already organized. Right. Um, in space time,
1: it's receptive. I wouldn't say it's. Pa- I would say that it's. A, it would be wrong to characterize that as entirely passive. It's certainly receptive, though, right? Um, um, the receptive in itself doesn't preclude some sort of activity, right? I mean, it just means that where where the thing is coming from is not you. It's coming from somewhere else, right?
0: <laughs> Me trying to answer that, I think, will take us too far. Afield. Okay. <laughs>
1: So we'll leave it as a we'll leave it as a Talmudic mystery.
0: <laughs> so it's a it's a difficult notion, but somehow where it's receptive, um, but not totally active.
1: We experience things in a sequence, so that's its temporality, and we experience things in various positions relative to one another, which is its spatiality. Their spatiality.
0: Yes, but uh, but very important in that. The space and time are the forms of intuition, the forms of receptivity. You said we experience things in a sequence, we experience things, you know, in a line, in spatial configurations. Well, no, we're giving them that member. We're giving them that um, spatial ordering, that sequential ordering. We're giving them that Spatial ordering as we receive them. So it's the way we receive things is spatiotemporal, but for Kant, it's only the way we perceive them, right? We're not even just perceive, but organize. Um, it's um, it's the space and time have no independent existence, right? Of our form of receptivity, right, right. All space and time are, are ways of organizing experience. Right. And then there are... Then there's the active faculty, right? And the active faculty also brings, uh, at least seemingly, a kind of content. And these... um, The content that uh, Kant says they bring, come in the form of the pure concepts of the understanding, which he also indifferently calls the categories. Categories is a term from Aristotle. And then he calls them pure concepts of the understanding. Right. And they're just, they correspond to sort of very basic features of the world. For very basic features of cognition, like object and property, uh, relations, cause and effect, and... Um,
1: now, there, there's a great Stop right there, because there's a great one for people who have some... And, you know, the Blind audience has a lot of very smart, well-read people, in it, and this, they'll, this may connect in a way. You know, cause and effect is one of the things that Hume is famously skeptical about, mm-hmm. and it's precisely because... As an empiricist, he can't get past the fact that the actual causality is never observed. What's observed is one thing happening and then another, and so Hume then suggests, "Well, we project the causality." In other words, what we what, what we actually have empirical warrant for is um uh uh, uh is um, correlation, right? Um, one thing happening and then another thing happening again and again, um, but the actual Making one, making the thing, first thing, making the things happen. Second thing happen, is not anything we exp- we have empirical justification for. That's something that comes out of us, right? In a sense, it, we mistake our sense of expectation for the next event for some actual glue in the world that connects them. And at least at a superficial level, Kant is agreeing with Hume that cause, that we contru- that we provide the, the causality, but. He's not agreeing with Hume in the same way, right? I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's a different way of, 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 um, of speaking of our contribution. Um, but, and to, but here's what's interesting. Kant views this as a way of solving the skeptical problem, whereas Hume would not view it as a way of solving the skeptical problem. If you're if Hume, if anything, what you have to do is just sort of drop the skeptical problem because... Uh, you know, as a pragmatic matter, your mind is always going to glue these things together. And so, you know, in your your functioning life, you might as well talk about cause and effect, right? Um, right.
0: So, right. I mean, this is a problem he gets from Hume. So um, the discussion of Hume is in mind. The famous Humean example is the billiard balls. Right. One billiard ball hits another billiard ball. You have this kind of – he thinks about it as discrete events – Kind of, this one hits and then this one goes forward, right? Do it again. This one hits, this one goes forward. Do it again. This one hits, this one goes forward. So, what do we see? We see hits. We see it goes forward. Hits goes forward. We don't
1: see making, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, we don't
0: see. Where's the cause? You know, what color is it? <laughs> we we just see these two events, right? And, um, and Hume says, "Well, seeing them as caused is." the constant conjunction in the mind. Right. But eventually, it's just the idea of a billiard ball hitting this one and the idea of that one going forward. is They're just going to be joined in your mind. When you think right. of this one, you're going to that's think right. of that one.
1: And we mistakenly project that joining in the mind into the world and think that there's some objective thing out there, which is the causality, but that's really just the, the mind's tendency to connect together these constantly conjoined events.
0: Notice... This does a better job at getting to the subjective-objective distinction than we, than we were, I think, before. Yeah. This is more what I had in mind. Yeah. Because, <laughs> of course, Hume said, Hume has to say in some sense there are causes and effects, right? Because otherwise you don't get anything like that. Or otherwise you, you fly wildly in the face of common sense. Right. But he, he has this very deflationary view where to say one event causes another is to say they're just constantly conjoined in the mind, which is a statement about the mind, right. not about the, the the actual events of the billion balls striking and the one going forward.
1: Yeah.
0: <clears throat> so you could already that you could that could already be alarmingly subjectivizing, right? <clears throat> we wanted to talk about cause and effect. We wanted to talk about billiard balls, not concepts and conjunctions in the mind. Right, right, right. Whereas Kant says, well, it is something in the mind but it's something that the mind adds to the world as we experience it, right? So to say, to use the categories of cause and effect is to organize experience in a causal way, which is to say um, objects in the world have cause and effect. They have relations of cause and effect. It's not just a conjunction. That event really caused that event. That event was an effect of that event. But they only are in that relation because we organize our experience that way.
1: Right, right. But the problem is, is that when you when we say this this way, it still sounds a hell of a lot like Hume. It just sounds like they're giving a different account of <coughs> the psychological mechanism that results in, in this, but I think that the difference is, is bigger than it seems because Hume's account still presumes a kind of a crude inner outer view of me and the world. In other words, in other words, um, um, when, I, when, when I say, well, this is me bringing something to the world, the world is over there, right? And right. my mind is over here. Yeah, go ahead. Where Kant was going to, the to reject that.
0: Hume is on the other side of the Copernican Revolution. Right. Right? Right. He thinks the world's out there, and if I'm going to have any knowledge, I've got to conform to it. Right. Whereas Kant thinks, well, there is a world out there, but it conforms to the way we make it. That's right. Henry Allison has a handy way of talking about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Hume is a transcendental realist. Kant is a transcendental idealist. Um, which, is, we're now, this is good.
1: That's great. Yeah, actually. We
0: got into, we're, we're now into the discussion of transcendental idealism. So we had this, we, we, we made this promise that we're going to talk about, um, the world conforming to our cognition. Right. And we were going to take, we we are, I said that people deserve some answer as to why that's not crazy. Right. And here we are. We're starting to think about that, right? So we're talking about billiard balls, and we'd say, "Yeah, the first the first billiard ball coming um, at that speed in that place and striking the second billiard ball causes that billiard ball to go forward." Yep, that happened. That's real. That's as real as it gets. It's it's out there. It's right. it's a relation of the billion dollars. It's not just something in our mind that we impose on them. <clears throat> he uses Kant uses this example of um he, he says that our our experience is empirically real but transcendentally ideal. <clears throat> and he said like um
1: You know explain yeah explain what that's yeah, f-
0: yeah. <laughs> He he imagines they didn't have hoses then, but if you put your thumb in a hose and look at it <clears throat> and you see a rainbow in it. Um, it looks like there's something there that's a rainbow. Um, but it's not really there. I mean, there's a light refraction there, but there's not a colored thing there as it might, as you might think seeing it for the first time. And he said, that's an illusion. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about transcendental ideality. That's just the mind projecting a, um, rainbow shape on the water, right? Kind of. But <clears throat> that's, but it's not a real thing. It just looks like there's a thing there. And he says that's not what he has in mind. So it's not like they look like they're billiard balls or it looks like one is causing the other to go. There are billiard balls. <laughs> right. One's causing the other to go. <clears throat> um, that's fine. It's just that that statement, those features of those billiard balls they're only real to people who perceive the world in our spatio-temporal, categorical way. Right,
1: right. right the, diff- look, the difference with Hume I mean, it, and, the, and the, the people before him is that the mind and the world are fully integrated in Kant in a way that in the, in the empiricists and the rationalists, there's always a separation. So we can always speak of the world that exists independently of the mind. And so we always have this even if we're sophisticated enough to understand that we bring certain things to the experience we then have to separate the experience as object of knowledge from the world as object of knowledge and what kant really is saying is no you can't disentangle the mind and the world they're like this right we can intellectually speak of the different parts and components but the world is a is a single thing it's not it's not something that you can that, that you can in fact pull apart right um, um, you can only pull them apart intellectually. I guess this will bring us to sort of also the phenomena and noumena, right? Um, yeah. but, but it really is the world, right? Right, yeah. Um, um, but the world is the world as experienced, and that's the only world there is,
0: right? Right. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Well, maybe, well, maybe there's a – okay, that's a good place to There's go. only the
1: world as experienced. Now, that doesn't mean there's only the world as experienced by us, yes. but there is only the world as experienced. Right. When you meet, if God. you mean it in a substantial way, right?
0: Mm, well, God doesn't experience Leave anything. God out. Let's leave. Okay. us
1: going to be three hours. Kant, Kant doesn't. Threaten. This is Kant's star. Okay? This is Kant's star.
0: <laughs> Kant for
1: educational purposes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes.
0: Right. For finite creatures, there is only the world as experienced. Right. Right. Um, and for whatever reason, Kant thinks all finite creatures would have to experience it through the categories or, I, or um, concepts of pure reason.
1: The active concepts. Yes. But he thinks the receptive concepts could be different. Uh, the, the, not concepts. I'm sorry, the, re- the reflective
0: The forms, formal intuitions. Right, right, right.
1: The, the receptive <coughs> forms could right. be different.
0: It could be different. So we could have a rational space alien who has the same categories, thinks in – Cause and effect, or, and I'm, there's several things I'm tabling here, so. That's that's, okay. Um, there are, he thinks in, you know, relations and cause and effect and object property, um, necessary, possible, uh, actual, possible, necessary. But, um, he doesn't perceive things in a spatial or temporal way. Right. He does, he just, ever, does he
1: ever give an ex- argument or explanation as to why he thinks the active concepts would not vary amongst rational beings or sentient beings while the receptive forms might? Or is does that, does that just a brute fact about his philosophy that he doesn't explain?
0: Um, well, he, it's one of those many places where he seems to say he explains something and it's very hard to catch him explaining <laughs> <right>. it. <laughs> That's actually it's a relatively new thing in the literature. There are more people, more but commentaries coming people out. People
1: pushing on that now.
0: Yeah, because uh, a lot of people have just said, "I don't know," or he doesn't really come through with that. But now there's a little pushback on that, and I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not up enough on that. That's fine. Much it's, about it. But it's a, one of those many mysterious places. Okay,
1: so we've got the active, we've got the active categories, and we've got the receptive forms each of these provides content that we then synthesize into strings of concepts that in a sense are propositions about the world. Right. Right. Um, um, How does phenomena and noumena now fit into this?
0: Right. So, I mean, we were talking about with Hume versus Kant, how, um, sort of, um, how different their views are. And you said, you know, the mind and the world are totally integrated in Kant. You went like this. Yeah. And now, now we have to figure out if it's like this or like this, because <clears throat> they're totally integrated. <clears throat> but what does that mean? I So the one, traditional way of reading. There are two traditional ways of reading it, right? <clears throat> One is called the two aspect <clears throat> and the other is called the two world version.
1: Okay. So talk through that for a few minutes.
0: Right. I've probably already been falling into talking about it in a two aspect way because that's the way I tend to read Kant. And I think that's the most philosophically exciting content. Um, on the two aspect version Something like this is true. So we can we project these forms, the spatiotemporal forms and the categorical forms, onto the world, and the objects of which we have experience can be considered two ways. They can be considered as numina. Which is a Kant word Kant uses <clears throat> to describe them as apart from any of experience we could have of them, and as far as they're objects of our experience, they're phenomena. That is, they're the phenomena that make up our uh, sensation, right, or our experience of the world. Doesn't um, doesn't
1: you know? Now that you just said that. I'm wondering if that actually his making that distinction is unfortunate for him, and I'll tell you why. Because it seems to me almost to be um, a retreat back into the prior view of the prior to them being integrated. In other words, it's almost like going back to saying, well, there really is a world independently of the mind, right, that we can actually speak of, right, Um, and make some sense of. Whereas I thought that, and that, and that would just then reintroduce all the skeptical problems again, because it seems—it sure. it, it seems to me like a little bit of a cheat to say, okay, on the one hand we can separate all these things, but on the other hand the skeptical problems don't arise because anything we're talking about the world we mean the phenomena, right? Um, that just—I mean—and I know that Barry Stroud in his book the the, *The the 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 Significance of Philosophical Skepticism* thinks that Kant is sort of cheating in this way. Um, so I'm wondering if maybe this making this distinction between phenomena and numina isn't somewhat unfortunate because it almost invites you to think, well, isn't this just a rehashing of the old way of looking at this with just different names
0: attached to the... Well, okay. Let me... So, okay. I'm talking... So I gave a... I was starting to talk about the, the two-aspect version, right? Right. Let me. Let me just finish that... Now I'll go to the two-world version and see if you find that less of a cheap. Okay, go
1: ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Okay. So on the two-aspect version, there's one set of objects considered in two aspects, right? So there are objects that we um, – <coughs> there are objects as we happen to experience them, and we can consider them as phenomena, and they appear—they appear to us. And this is a this is a his idiom. A lot of the time is they appear to us as spatiotemporal and as having categorical forms. That is, they appear to us as having being broken into objects with properties, um, with causal relations. They appear that way to us because those are our modes of representation. And we can consider them. As they are independently of uh, the way we experience them.
1: I'm sorry to be so so sort of insistent on this, but yeah, wouldn't sure. you have to say we can't consider them? We can intellectually imagine that there must be some condition that they could have independently of, our, but the minute That's we the consider thing. but the yeah. minute we consider them we're thinking of them already through the cap we're already thinking in other words there can't be any substance to that notion right
0: this gets tricky um, <laughs> yes it does all right well let me get to the two world go ahead i'm sorry uh, i'm fucking up no this. no no <laughs> uh, so the two world version is we experience the world in such a way that we experience certain objects that are called phenomena. And then there's a distinct set of objects called noumena of which we can have no experience.
1: So that's, the two, that's the two world view.
0: That's the two world view. Yeah. We have knowledge, but only of phenomena. We, there are noumena. But we have no knowledge.
1: But what are the, what's the relationship of the noumena to the phenomena on the two worldview? Is it the noumena caused the, us to have the phenomena? Noumena is the external world that we then have, we perform the mental operations on that then produce the phenomena? Because that just then sounds like Descartes or Locke, right? Uh, right? The primary quality, except there are no primary qualities, there's just generic stuff, right? And the noumena is generic stuff, right?
0: Yeah, something something like that. There are different ways it can go, but something like that. The point is that our objects of experience are not identical to anything um, outside of it. Okay. Anything with independent existence.
1: And so how is the two-aspect view substantively different from this? Um, but it sounds to me like on the two aspect view, what you're saying is, look, um, numina is what we would is what the name we have for these for, for the for the world when we imagine it not being perceived from our perspective, right? Um, how is that different from the view that there are things that exist prior to our conceptualization of them, right? Um, those are the numina. And then, depending on the kind of cognitive apparatus you have, they're going to produce different sorts of phenomena, and that's that, that, those that those phenomena are the objects of knowledge in the in the tangible sense, in the meaningful sense.
0: Well, crudely, crudely put, on the two aspect view or version of the two aspect view, you might think you can get all that there is to get, right.
1: Ah, I see. Yes, yes. Yeah. So. um, But numina is purely an intellectual conception, something that you can intellectually imagine because you can sort of subtract things right in your mind. But the world is always as experienced in one way or another, right?
0: Right, exactly. Right, Right.
1: so. I like that, yeah, yeah.
0: Here, you know, here comes the. Um, rational alien with non-spatio-temporal um, organization and it sees the world one way and we see the world the other way, it's not like either one of us is getting it right or wrong. Right, We're just both constructing it as we happen to construct it. We do right. it spatial and temporal, they do it some other way, which would be incomprehensible right. to us.
1: Right, I, I like that. The, the problem with the two-world view is that it implies that there, is, there at least in principle could be some way of knowing without applying active and receptive categories. And in a sense, the two-aspect view is denying that, right? It's saying, look, no, I mean, we can intellectually separate the pieces it's, but the it's a, world is always a thing, as experienced one way or another, right?
0: It's at least implying that there is a reality out there that we don't have access to, right? What it would take to get access to that? Be God, maybe, yeah. maybe. But um, <clears throat> there, actually, I referenced Ray Langton before. I didn't. One thing she does point out that's quite right he pretty clearly believes that there's something humanal that's in some sense to be gotten and we don't get it. And he thinks that that's, if not lamentable, at least very regrettable. Hmm.
1: So there's evidence that he holds the two world view.
0: Oh, if there weren't evidence that he held the two world view and evidence that he held, held the two aspect view, the world would be, a much less complicated place but, right
1: yeah it, it, no. it just is it just is that the two look and so many things are like this um, huh. it's just that the two aspect view may be the best version of, it. in other words, you know if you're going to construct you know what's the best version of Kant from what we've got, the two aspect right. view is better than the two world view that doesn't mean it's the view he held, right just right. like there's two ways of reading the principle of utility we're not sure which one Mill meant, but whichever one he meant, that doesn't necessarily make it the best version of utilitarianism right. And so you're and, saying and, 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 the two-aspect view is the best version, not yeah. necessarily that it's Kant's version.
0: I Well, I I don't have um, totally definitive views on this, or else I'd be, I don't know, an academic star or something. But um, what you said about, you know, the utility principle and about the two-aspect two world view, the fact that, it's the best view doesn't mean that it's the view that he held. Right. A lot of the times you do a lot of violence to these texts if you think, look, there are these two possible interpretations. Which is the view that he held? Sometimes he holds, I mean, I think sometimes I he yet. floats into one, sometimes floats He may into not hold
1: it. He may be ambivalent or he may be vacillating or he may.
0: Sometimes when he thinks about religion, he starts to sound a little too world. Too worldly. He starts to talk more about human perception starts to sound a little more to an aspect. Yeah. I think that's very possible. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, const- he's always doing his best to hold all the plates in the air. He never likes to let anything fall. Or, you know... He has uh,
1: trouble committing.
0: I, Hume, Hume has...
1: There's a certain comfortableness with Hume. You know, Hume raises tremendously difficult problems. Yeah. and But he's so comfortable with the idea of being constrained by his own nature. that it doesn't trouble him. If anything, he says, you become troubled when you resist, right? Yeah, right. Um, And Kant is is, is uncomfortable, right? I mean, Kant is not comfortable, right?
0: And I think, I find it interesting to note that Hume was, if not a dissolute, at least a bit of a... Bit of a dandy going about town. Yeah.
1: Well, he had <laughs> he had his priorities straight, right? I mean, he he, he wasn't <laughs> well, some no, some, no. some creep in a basement, right? I mean, he he, no, he, no. he had friends and went out, and <laughs> <laughs> he was just
0: fitting to his nature, right? Whereas Conch um, was, uh, you know, a great he's he's this guy, the yeah, great moralizer, yeah,
1: unfriendly
0: somebody who. Um, it's a very high premium on independence autonomy self mastery right very Protestant to a
1: degree that in my view is delusional self delusional um, um, I also think that there's it's not an accident I think I think that there's a lot of national character in these um, these philosophies uh, this is also you know the first period in which philosophy is written in the vernacular rather than in yes. rather than in the, and then so the national character really starts to come through it's not a surprise that you've got a scotsman with an attitude like hume's and you've got a a, a, a half mental german um with these like god um, um but um,
0: but I, I do think you're talking about you know Hume bites all kinds of bullets, you know,
1: but hop comfortably. A They're not belts
0: of bullets. Yeah, and he's not
1: gritting his teeth, though,
0: right? can <laughs> won't bite any. But yeah. I mean, Hume lets bites too many bullets because there does have to be a way, I think, in which um, we're also active. We're not merely receptive, kind of causally constrained,
1: right? Well, Hume does have an account of the way in which we're active. It just may be. It just may be too limited. Um, Uh, partly because, you know, his psychology is very primitive. But I actually think there's a lot of relationship, you know, once you break past that between Hume and the later Wittgenstein, which is a much more um, expansive notion of that kind of activity. Um, 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 And I'll actually link to, there's a book that makes this connection explicitly, uh, P.F. Strawson. Has a book called Skepticism and Naturalism, which explicitly makes the connection between Hume uh, and the later Wittgenstein um, with respect to these questions of knowledge and warrant. There's a lot of similarities between stuff that Wittgenstein says in Uncertainty uh, and what Hume says in the treatise. Once you get crossover from the psychological to the linguistic idiom, um, um, actually, a lot of what they're saying is very similar. You know, Hume wants to say that we're constrained in ways by our nature, whereas, you know recognizing saying that we're constrained by the language games that we play, um, but the constraints function in a simpler, sim- similar way. Um, 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 you know with respect to maybe the last thing we should talk about um, because, because I think we really did a very nice you did a really nice uh, uh, summary of this in a way that's very understandable. Um, how is this supposed to solve the skeptical problems that we started with? So why does this work? Why does this get us out of the hole that at least Descartes was left in with the failure of his project? That Hume might have been left in if you're not satisfied with the sa- with the naturalistic account. How is Kant supposed to have solved this problem given the apparatus that you've been describing for the last hour and a half?
0: I remember. I was remembering. As you were saying this, as, as we were talking about skepticism before, um, a teacher of mine, he probably won't mind, but I guess I won't mention his name, but he um, he got to a certain point in the lecture, and we were very deep into the, cre- the critique and <clears throat> talking about his views, and he had his fist up on the board, and he was looking back at us grinning and goes, is Kant a skeptic?
1: Oh, God.
0: You know? <laughs> he so you're not even
1: convinced that he is intending to solve the skeptical problem.
0: Um, it depends on the skeptical problem. Uh, we, we didn't External world skepticism. I mean, what he says in the Prolegomena. No, no. In what we were talking about, he does have a refutation of idealism, which is an answer <laughs> to external world skepticism. I don't think anything we talked about is supposed to be uh, a re- uh, refutation of external world. Now, let me ask
1: you, why wouldn't it be? Because, look, external world skepticism arises because of the gap between the subjective, the mental picture, and the object of the world. Now, by virtue of of, of intertwining them and saying that mind is throughout intertwined with world, you eliminate that gap. You eliminate the appearance-reality gap, right? Which is, which is where you get the skeptical problem from to begin but with. But you
0: don't. You... You eliminate it only in the cases of veridical experience. I could be... Explain that. Right. You you only eliminate it for experiences where you're getting it right. So I could be in a totally phenomenal world of my own construction and still dreaming a dream like Descartes imagines. But Descartes says, you know, I think there's a hand in front of me, something you remember from right. lately. Right. Um, <laughs> I think there's a hand in front of me, but, you know, in the past I've been dreaming, and I thought there was a hand in front of me, but there was no hand in front of me. Now, I could be dreaming now, <coughs> therefore I have to doubt that this is a hand in front of me. <coughs> um, so I don't know that this is a hand in front of me. Now, we could just put in front of we could just run that same argument again for, I think there's a phenomenal hand in front of me. Um, I thought that there is – it's thought in the past that there was a phenomenal – But
1: phenomenal hands are the only hands there are, according to Kant.
0: Well, but there are also dreams of phenomenal hands.
1: Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So, I and even before, we were talking about – so when we started getting into the critique of pure reason and we talked about analysis and sentences – in synthetic a priori, we could have structured the conversation a different way, but um, um, it, or it seemed to me our whole argument presupposed that we get it right some part of the time. Like when I was talking about um, the, the 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 rainbow and the hose. Right, um, that's getting it wrong. And he says, "Well, you know, he he assumes we have some experience of getting it wrong, as in contrast to getting it right, sometimes empirically, with objects in the world, right? And most of the time, he talks about science as an achievement. You know, he just assumes that we have knowledge of the world. Um, uh, so it doesn't um, it doesn't touch that, but it's not supposed to." So one, I was thinking the other way we could have constructed it is he said in this famous letter to Heretz when he first had the idea for the book, <coughs> we have, um, <coughs> this is, this problem, the problem of the book is the problem of objective validity, meaning objective validity means something like in modern philosophical terms, truthfulness, which is if we have these categories and we have the spatial temporal forms and we just bring it to the world, how can we say that it's the sort of stuff that we can make statements about the world with? You know, I have this statement, this thing in, at this time in this space caused that thing or caused that event at this space and time. Um, that's so wrapped up in things that I just bring to it, how can I say it's about something outside myself? How can I say that this causes that when cause and cause and effect are just things that I bring to it? And that's what we were talking about with the Hume discussion, right? Yeah. It does seem like Kant has an answer that uh, Hume doesn't, where Hume just says, you know what? It's just necessary connection in the mind. Cause and effect, it's really not out in the world. Right. And I think, you know, Hume just says, let me tell, this is my hypothesis. See if the story I can tell based on that is more compelling. And I think it is more compelling because it does have cause and effect in space and time actually involved in the world.
1: Right, right. And,
0: what you said about Descartes, you know, what, how, I think there are epistemological problems that go away when you start thinking this way.
1: Right, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And it does, what we've done does address some of the skeptical problems. So it does ex- address Hume's skeptical problem because one of the things that Kant is going to say is um, that Hume, in a sense, cuts things up the wrong way when he says, mm-hmm. you know, uh, caus- causality is really in here and not in the world.
0: Right.
1: <clears throat> that's that's assuming a notion of the world. Right. That doesn't have our con- cognition mixed up with it. And what Kant says, no, there isn't. The world isn't this separate place, right? From your mind, your mind is sort of an interior room in your over here, and the world's over there. The world is wrapped up. The world has got your has got the mind in it, right? So it does to the extent to which there are skeptical problems that arise from this crude subject-object distinction, world-mind distinction that the traditional empiricists and rationalists want to make, it does solve those problems. Yes. <laughs> but something like the dreaming argument, which doesn't necessarily have to trade upon that uh, <coughs> subjective-objective, although I think maybe in some ways it still does, but that, that would take us take way too long to work through, that maybe it, it doesn't provide a solution to that yet. Yeah. Um, so, um notice-
0: it solves Hume's problem at the expense, you might think, of saying that the world and mind are mixed up in this way. Yeah. Um, which is where Barry Stroud thinks, you know, it's not worth it, if that's what it's going to Yeah, take. but I
1: actually, you know, I, I kind of do like that in a sense because, um, you know, I then, you know, you, you mentioned Wilfred Sellers. Maybe we'll do a yeah. whole other dialogue on Sellers. Um, but then that, that then brings us to what Sellers calls the manifest image, right? Right. Um, um, and then he wants to contrast that with the scientific image, um, and I think that they are interesting that by, by Kant by doing this provides us with a way of thinking about things that maybe uh, leads to more fruitful dichotomies as opposed to world and mind. Let's put right. it that way. Um, with and leave that as a teaser, maybe, <laughs> maybe for a future.
0: Well, it's good that we see we got to a place where we can see Kant is doing something fruitful. Because, I mean, I mean... Oh, yeah. I people, mean, does anybody not think that? <laughs> well,
1: no, I mean, so me much tell, of 20th yeah, century so philosophy me. is reacting to Kant. I mean, Jesus, I mean, half of Hilary Putnam's work is, is reacting to Kant. I mean, yeah. Nelson Goodman, I mean, all this sort of stuff about yeah. conceptual people, and ontological relativity. I mean, all this stuff...
0: People who are hearing it for the first time. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, the problem of synthetic a priori... So, uh, you know, synthetic a priori, um, transcendental idealism, intuition concept. Yes. Like, what the hell do I, what does this have to do with me? Well, if you're making up the world in a way, and maybe you could make it up in some different way, it does matter, and it does change how you navigate the world and yeah. how you think about it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Did so Kant ultimately, just one last thing, the way you just put that, do we know or does Kant ever say, Does he? does he expect that eventually at some point? Science is going to show us that the way that that we actually physiologically do this—that you know, the physiologic—that there are physiological or does this operate purely at the level of a conceptual analysis uh, on his part, or does he expect at some point that this is going to be realized in some sort of science of of, of human psychology or of human of human nature the way that Hume did, right?
0: Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah. No, I don't think he does. In fact, uh, this probably won't satisfy you, probably doesn't satisfy me, but um, he talked about Locke and he said he derived the categories but he gave a mere physiological.
1: Uh, So he doesn't even think that's a a useful thing to have, even if you Seemingly
0: not. Seemingly not. Um, And if, if it's a science, it's going to be a science that very much resembles Kant's philosophy.
1: Right, because when you talk about, start talking about receptive um, uh, forms and active uh, 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 categories it's very natural to now think about you know modular pictures of the brain and the different parts of the brain performing these different functions and it's very important for people to say he doesn't mean that at all right this is a purely conceptual landscape he's painting right
0: I think he doesn't mean that at all
1: is there contention about that
0: apparently yes um, whether they're
1: cognitive scientists who are trying to sort of appropriate some of this stuff and yeah. Okay. Okay. If you actually, if you know about it, of any sort any such things you, we could link to that. I mean, if you know of any essays or well, well, well hashed over articles that, that where, where people are doing this, I you know, we could link to it in the uh, link to it in the link section. Um, well, we're at an hour and 15 minutes, which is probably about as far as we can push the poor audience. Uh <laughs> Uh, as we know, us insiders, we could do this for probably four hours. And if there were drinks involved, it would go even longer, right? <laughs> um, but uh, for this format, I think we've, probably, we've pushed it to the limit. Um, I want to thank you very much. And um, I hope we'll do this again, either more on Kant or maybe something on Sellers um, or, or anything else of this sort. I hope that I can persuade you to come back and join me again.
0: I want to I interview yeah, you. Go ahead. You want to interview
1: that- me? yes oh god forbid (laughs) (laughs) nobody wants to hear what i think about anything (laughs) all right david thank you so much all right thank you take care
0: take care thanks for listening to meaning of life tv you can help support this content by remembering to like us on facebook and follow us on twitter You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.